when she was in prison in the Ashoka Garden. Now, Hanuman uh, presented to her or made an offer to Sita that he could carry her back. All right. And interestingly, Sita refuses that, although, you know, she is imprisoned there in the Ashoka Garden. And Ravan had given her an ultimatum that unless you come to my bed in 30 days, I'm going to chop you up, make minced meat and, and eat you up. With all that kind of a threat, she refuses to go back uh, with Hanuman, making several different uh, arguments that I'll fall off your back. I don't ride on the back of another male other than my husband. But the most important argument she makes is that I want Rama to come, defeat Ravan, take me back. And that's the proper way to do it. So only a very strong person would make an argument like that. Now, in some of the popular um, uh, characterization that I see on TV, you know, uh, on, on the Ramayana, they often show Sita as weeping and crying, uh, you know, not having much strength. But I don't see Sita's character like that. Nobody forced her to go to the forest. You know, she insisted. In fact, she insisted that, you know, she has to, to, to go. Okay. Another is, uh, again, there's another representation on that very topic, is the character Draupadi. You know, all of you are familiar with the story. She was dragged to the court. But she makes a very important lawyer's argument. She says, was I lost? Did uh, uh, you just, uh, lose me before he lost himself or after he lost himself? If he lost me after he had already lost himself in the wager, then he had no right to wager me, no right to. So all of this is against dharma. And of course, the arguments may, were made back and forth. But that again indicates that she was a very strong woman. In fact, some people say that the whole Mahabharata war happened because of the stand that uh, dropped the uh, took. And there'll be more presentation on the topic later on. Now, Middle Ages, uh, the status of women tends to fall in India. Um, slavery enters India on a large scale, and this is the beginning of the Muslim era. As you know, Muhammad Ghori Khan established the, the Ghori rule in Delhi. And uh, girls, young and beautiful, were taken to slave markets in Bukhara and sold off. Records are available from Muslim writers that how many men and women were enslaved in India and taken over. In fact, in America, we have some uh, uh, professors from uh, Baghdad, from Iraq, and they tell me that uh, there's a section of the population there they look very much like uh, people from India. So indicating that a uh, lot of people were enslaved in India. The numbers in, in millions, it's not in thousands. They were taken to the slave markets in Bukhara and Balkh and other, and, and other places and, and sold. And also, as a result of that, uh, there's a very good book here, Muslim Slave System of Medieval India by K.S. Lal. If you want to read something on the slave system that happened in India, we need to refer to that. Now, the Mughal harem is another institution which comes into being. These harems are very large. Uh, I don't know. Even Akbar, who is held up as an enlightened uh, Mughal uh, ruler, 
at a harem of about 500 women. So that was kind of a very sta a standard practice in the Mughal era. And it's not only the Mughals and the Muslim rulers had very large harems, but also our own Indian rulers, Rajas and Maharajas, duplicated that. For example, this is the famous or well-known Bhupinder Singh, um, Maharaja Patiala. Uh, you know, he, he, he's kind of well-known a womanizer, but he had also had a very large uh, harem. Here are some of his chief queens there, six or seven of them. Now, Urta enters in the Middle Ages in India. You know, a lot of the figures that we have, you know, Sita, Draupdi, and some of the other characters, you don't see them veiled. But in the Middle Ages, this is very common. I grew up in North India in the state of Punjab, so this kind of a figure was very, very common. Of course, it's disappearing on a large scale, but nonetheless, Purda enters North India on a large scale. Now, this is another you know, kind of a common picture that you will see, not very uncommon even today to some extent. Now, Purda, although is disappearing in India, as you know, I mean, you know, I see very few girls wearing any kind of a veil, but in... Uh, Pakistan, I don't know if you are familiar, this is Prime Minister Imran Khan, and this is his, I don't know, fourth or fifth wife called uh, Bushra Mir, and she claims to be a Sufi saint, and she dresses like, like that in, in, in properly veiled. In fact, uh, this is another image of uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan is his, his current wife. This is how she dresses. From what little I have read, this Bushra Khan is quite an influence on, on the Prime Minister there. Uh, when he met President Trump in America about a year ago, he carried with him the Tasvi, that you know, small mala type of a thing, and, and he was going over the beach on that. I don't know if you've seen that uh, image or not, but... Uh, She's quite an influence on, uh, on matters of the state as well. Now, during the independence movement, women uh, play also an important role. I don't want to dwell on that, but I'll show you a few of the images, a few of the pictures, female participation. Of course, Rani Jhansi is well known. Uh, so is Madam Kama. Uh, I think it was Mary Kama who was an associate of Veer Savarkar. When Veer Savarkar, he left uh, England on, on a ship. Uh, then he jumped in France. I think you probably know that story. And he escaped to French territory thinking that the British police would have no claim on him on French territory. It was Madame Kama who was supposed to meet him. But unfortunately, she didn't show up there on time. So he was captured or recaptured by the British police and then brought to India and condemned two life terms, which was highly, highly unusual. The other one is Rojini Nairo. Uh, no need to say much on him. And then uh, Kasturba Gandhi. Uh, not only she was the wife of Mahatma Gandhi, but she herself was quite an active participant in the uh, struggle for independence. Aruna Asaf Ali, I think, is well known to the Delhi audiences because she was elected as the mayor many years ago here. I go to Vande Matram by Mankam Chandra Chatterjee. 
Now, in India, we conceptualize our country as mother, Mata, okay, Bharat Mata, this is what we call. Not in every country do they call their land as the motherland. In Germany, for example, they call Germany as the fatherland. In some of the other European countries, uh, their country is known as the fatherland. But we call it, you know, motherland, matra, bhumi. And Bande Matram, you know, a well-known uh, national song uh, is addressed to um, India as the, as the mother figure. Now, these are a couple of the uh, important uh, passages there, and the translation of this is done by Sri Aurobindo. I'll read the, the last paragraph there. It says, Thou art Durga, Lady and Queen, with her hands that strike in her swords of shame. Thou art Lakshmi, Lotus Throne, in the muse hundred tones, pure and perfect, without peer, mother lend thine ear. So I have an image of Sri Aurobindo over there. To my reading, from what I little I've read on this, they say the Congress government, they did not include this particular passage in the Vande Matram that we accept as a national song. They accept the rest of it, but this particular passage is not included in the official doctrine. That is you know, a little bit of a sad story. Now the contemporary scene, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the contemporary scene, you know, what's going on. Voting in India is problematic. Why? Among the educated in India, voting is depressed. I have to spend a little bit of time on that. Hindus vote in lower numbers as compared with Muslims and other minorities. And here are the data I want to present to you. So the Hindu voting rate is the lowest. Sikh, 81%. Muslim, 70%. Hindu, 60%. So for whatever reasons, I guess there are several different reasons, uh, Hindu voting rate is the lowest in the country. So if you think that Hindus are disenfranchised, they don't, even though they are majority of the population, uh, their concerns are not properly heard of. One reason for that is that Hindus don't vote at the same level as some of the other minorities do. In fact, uh, the voting rate also is inverted in India. Uh, the more education you have, lower the voting rate, as you can see from here. Prime, primary or middle school, 83%, college, 57%, postgraduate, 41%. Now, this is, you know, highly, highly unusual in the global scene. In the United States, where, you know, I teach and I live, the voting rate increases with education. Higher the education, higher the voting rate. Now, this is how it is. In fact, the next slide will show you that. But in India, it's, it's inverted. The more educated, higher the income you have, higher the education you have, lower the voting rate. And that is, I think, problematic. That's really, really sad. I show the comparison with the United States. The first column, uh, voting rate increasing from 38% to 43%, 79 to 84%. So if you are postgraduate in America, 84% of the people would vote. In India, on the other hand, you can see it's only about 42%. So 
I think we ourselves are to blame. If people with higher education don't vote in the, in the same percentage, in the same number, obviously we don't seem to count to the same extent. This is uh, in the U.S., you know, higher the education, higher the income, higher the voting rate. In India, the pattern is like that. Higher the education, higher the income, lower the voting rate. It's inverted. Now, here are some images that I picked up from the internet. You can see, you know, women voting. I mean, from the images that you see, from the pictures that you see, there's a hardly college-educated women. I think, you know, they're they are ordinary, uh, working-class kind of women is the images that, that I see in large numbers. And as I indicated, you know, six have the highest voting rate in India. I think I showed you about 81%. Well, here's an image of that. You can see how many of them are lined up. I don't see very, very many Hindus lined up to the same extent. So this is, this is kind of really sad. Now, Hindus should learn from the Sikhs. Sikhs are active internationally, especially in Canada. So I'm going to make a few comments of Hindu and Sikh participation internationally, especially in Canada. Canada is a country with a population of about 35 million, Sadatim crore. And Hindus and Sikhs are about 1.5 million. But 50% of the Indians in Canada are Hindu, 50% of the Indians in Canada are Sikh. So Sikh and Hindus are kind of equally divided in Canada. However, in terms of the political participation, Sikhs do remarkably well in Canada. Now, here is Harjeet Sajjan, Defense Minister. Now, can you believe that in Canada, you have the Defense Minister, a turban-wearing Sikh is the Defense Minister in Canada. In fact, there are five or six members of the cabinet. And as I say, you know, the number is more or less the same um, as the number of Hindus in Canada. But they get organized. See, Gurdwara is a functioning institution. Unfortunately, our temples don't do the same kind of a job as the Gurdwaras do. Now, here's another image. He is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the New Democratic Party in Canada. This is the third largest party. There's the, there's the Liberal Party, which is the largest, then the Conservative Party, and the third largest party is the Democratic Party, New Democratic Party. Now, because this time around, um, the Liberal Party of Trudeau did not win a clear majority, so they have to bargain for a coalition government. So the Jagmeet Singh is playing a very important role. Now, 156 MPs elected Canada in 2015. Okay, the number of Hindus is, uh, I think, three or four. Okay, so now, you know, as Prime Minister Trudeau, okay, he was in India, I think, what, about a year ago or eight or nine months ago. It's very important for a Canadian leader to go to the Golden Temple. Here you see Trudeau, you know, wearing a headscarf there and visiting the Golden Temple. I don't know if he went to Akshradham here. Uh, you know, I don't know if he went to any Hindu temple. But, you know, they know uh, who support they need. Now here is Prime Minister Trudeau, his wife and his daughter, as you can see, roti bail rahe hain. I mean, it's, 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 it's really amazing. The influence of Sikhs in 
Canada is, you know, truly amazing. Uh, unlike Hindus, you know, because we simply don't do the same kind of a job. Okay. So, this is kind of a comment on my part. Says, Seek ye first the political kingdom, then all others shall be added unto it. I think historically, Hindus have given up on the political arena. I mean, this has been going for a thousand years, you know. Uh, you know, Muslims came here. We didn't quite stand up to them. Uh, they established uh, uh, the kingdom and the Mughal Empire and so on and so forth. Uh, even though we have good models in Ramayana fighting for justice in Mahabharata, standing up to your rights, for some reason, maybe some of the philosophies, negative philosophies, Brahma Satya, Jagat Mithya, ye Jagat Mithya hai, isme kuch nahi hai, chodo isko. Maybe some negative philosophies took hold of uh, India in the 8th century. Um, you know, they, after, thereafter, I think, perhaps we declined. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, this continues um, not only under the Muslim and the British camp, and even presently, you know, Hindus are disempowered. They really don't exercise, they don't have the same kind of political power. So, one more comment, and that is India's fractured electorate. On the average, 8,200 8, candidates for 543 seats. That means there are 15 candidates running for each parliamentary seat. What's the implication of that? The implication of that is that you need only about 20 to 25 percent of the vote to win. Well, if you need only 20 to 25 percent of the vote to win, an entrenched minority, if they have a block voting, about 15 percent or so, you know, they exercise a great deal of influence. You know, it's, it's not just two political parties, you have 15 different political parties competing. So. And this is another problem that we have. You know, too many political parties, and all you need is about 20, 25 percent of the vote to win. And so a minority can exercise a great deal of influence. Um, and of course, you know who the block voting is. I will, Hindus are politically weak in their own, own homeland. BJP and Hindus, now Conrad Elster's here in the audience, I saw him, he made an observation that even the BJP is in awe of the secularists. Don't expect them to do a great deal. They're a political party. They need to stay in power. Then they know where the votes are. So they cannot quite negate. So we must need to rejuvenate ourselves. We must need to learn from our compatriots. We must organize together. We must build temples, which are not simply Murthy Puja. We go and make some donations, but they have to be institutions where people are brought together and uh, appeals are made not only in terms of religion but also larger social and political issues. So this is essentially a few of the comments that I had to make.